not just doing more. I mean, doing more in terms of bringing more people in is important, but I think it's also doing what we do in a more principled way so that, for example, you know, we're not just sort of bringing in the 40,000 Syrian um, resettled refugees that will satisfy an election promise, but we're thinking about who those folks are. We're thinking about who their families are who are left behind. Welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall, and I'm the project coordinator of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at the University of Windsor Law School. I'm alone at the moment because Julie is in Australia, where, among other things, she's recording some more fantastic conversations for the podcast. So, while Julie and I did record our debrief chat before she left, and you'll hear from both of us at the end of the episode, this week it's up to me to introduce our guest, Dr. Annika Smith. Annika is an associate professor at Windsor Law and therefore a colleague of Julie's, and her focus is currently on refugee and immigration issues as both a scholar and an activist. She's the founder of the Windsor Chapter of the Refugee Sponsorship Support Program, which is a national program that matches lawyers with private refugee sponsorship groups to provide pro bono legal assistance through the sponsorship application process. Annika is very much engaged in the Windsor community. She's a great mentor to her students and is personally very busy with three school-aged children. Julie spoke with Annika while she was on sabbatical in Amsterdam in the fall, and they had a great conversation about Canada's response to the current refugee crisis. Let's listen. It's Julie calling. How are you? Hi, Julie. I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Good. Good. And I just want to make sure that everybody realizes we're reaching you in Amsterdam. Indeed. Where you've been on sabbatical for the last couple of months. Yeah, I've been here since the middle of August as a visiting researcher at the Center for Migration Law at the Vrije Universiteit Amsterdam. We really wanted to talk to you on the podcast about your work on, on refugee issues in particular. Uh, so I'm just going to wade into this right away and, and, and ask what I think is probably the question on a lot of people's minds right now, which is that we're seeing all these political battles over how many refugees are welcomed into communities, uh, both in Europe and in North America. And these, these are very heated debates, of course, and some of them reflect some spirit of generosity, but they also reflect fears and, and divisions amongst people. So, you know, could you just begin by talking a little bit about what you think the debates we're seeing at the moment tell you about how people balance their generosity on the one hand and also their fears about welcoming refugees into their communities? Sure, yeah. I mean, and I think the, the debate is, is to a degree different, or the situation is to a degree a bit different in North America than it is in Europe. I mean, we're just geom- geographically um, don't have the same proximity in North America to to where where the, the sort of heart of some of these issues are playing themselves out. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that makes a bit of a difference. But, you know, I think to a degree it tells us that we're perhaps um, not as, not as open and not as generous as we like to think we are. It, uh, you know, it, it, when I think when push comes to shove, when the numbers start to grow, people, people have their backs up a bit. But I think it also, it also tells us that how we do 
immigration and how we how we welcome refugees is a really important aspect of things. It's not just the numbers that we take in, but it's right. how we integrate, right? You know, and I think um, it's been interesting to reflect on that in, in the Netherlands the last few months. I think in many cases, the sort of history of tolerance in, in Amsterdam and in much of the country has led to uh, an, an integration program or, or approach to integration, which has been quite successful. And I think that's led to, you know, other, you know, France, for example, has perhaps um, been more heated. Things are not perfect here either. And, you know, I read a statistic the other day that said that visible minorities are two and a half times more likely to be unemployed in the Netherlands than a white Dutch yeah. person. This is not a country without issues when it comes to integrating newcomers. But I do think it, it does settle things. It sort of, you know, the, the, the sort of levels of fear don't seem to be there. It seems to me, and even compared with 20 years ago, time here the last time, it seems to me that schools are more integrated. You know, I've got three kids in school here, and, and schools also, and that's a, a key part, right, do a very good job yes. of getting kids into the Dutch language quickly, into the regular sort of mainstream classes quickly, right. you know, and the very inclusive atmospheres all around that really sort of pull everyone together. So I think that is a big part of it, absolutely. Really struck by what you said at the beginning, someone like you who is not from North America originally, that there really is a difference in the proximity to what's happening at the moment. And, you know, and I also know a little about, about the history of integration and, and welcoming of refugees in the Netherlands. And I'm struck by the differences with some of the other parts of Europe, as you, you mentioned, France and the United Kingdom, where I'm from also has not had a good record on this. I mean, do you have any kind of reflections on you know, why we're seeing this being dealt with in one way in the Netherlands and in a different way in France and in the UK? It's hard to say. I don't know. I don't have a great insight into what it what it is, aside from that, that has meant that Holland sort of hasn't had these swings that, that the UK and France did. I mean, the last election, you know, the far right, you know, had a strong showing. I don't know. I, I'd like to think that it's, we're far from that here and that we're far from that in Canada. Talk a bit about Canada, because, of course, Canada has a very proud history of its willingness to open doors to refugees and to asylum seekers. In North America, it's certainly been... I think, a, a kind of leader in, in, in that respect. And, you know, we're now seeing, you know, waves of people fleeing war and terrible hardships in so many parts of the world, Syria, Somalia, Myanmar, and, of course, there are many others. Do you feel, as an academic, as an activist in Canada, that Canada is doing enough at this point? It's tough to say. I mean, I think the short answer is probably no. I think I think our our record is has been strong in the last couple of years, and we have to remember that we, you know, in the fall of 2015, came out of a, a decade of um, you know policy that in, under the Conservative government that was really meant to stem the flow as much as possible yeah. and uh, and close those doors. So I think you know we've returned in many ways to the more positive parts of our history. Our, our history is not 100% positive on, on on refugee settlement and refugee welcoming either. I mean, there are both away several times in history, for example, in Canada too, but, but I think it has returned to the more positive parts of, of our legacy for the most part. We talk about what's enough in Canada, and we're in a place mm-hmm. where generally the boats are not arriving. And now we, we've seen things a little differently on the border in the last few months, but generally speaking, we're not a country where, where the masses are pushing at our borders. And so that gives us a certain, it gives us a different vantage point than, than much of Europe, right, when it comes to sort of how we, how we deal with irregular migration, how we deal with legal migration and how those two come together. And, you know, and yet I have conversations here with people where I feel like I'm prefacing by saying, well, things are different in Europe because 
the numbers are so much greater. And you know, I have people that look at me and say, the numbers are bad in Lebanon. The numbers are not bad in Amsterdam. Well, are right. we doing enough? I, you know, I, I would say not. I think our, on resettlement in particular, we could be doing far better. To add to that too, I think the other thing is, it's not just doing more in terms of bringing more people in is important, but I think it's also doing what we do in a more principled way. So that, for example, you know, we're not just sort of bringing in the 40,000 Syrian mm. um, resettlement, resettled refugees that will satisfy an election promise, but we're thinking right. about who those folks are. We're thinking about who their families are, who are left behind, and what kind of policies need to be in place either to make good selections from the beginning and, and principal selections or to be able to sort of go in and, and you know, have the follow-up policies which will allow them to shore up their families and, and really put them in a position, to, again, to integrate well and to thrive. And, and that's where I feel like we, we have let people down. And maybe can I can I just ask you a little bit more about that because this comes back to the point that you made earlier that it, that in some ways all of these questions are about how people integrate and how they become part of the community themselves and you know you gave the example of kids and how kids become part of the community and then parents become part of the community. Do you think that there's more that we could be doing in Canada to really think harder about that integration piece? I mean, I think a lot of it is making sure that the families are coming whole or able to be whole um, down right. the road in the sense that, uh, you know, if you want mom and dad to feel free to go out and work or to be attending their language classes regularly, things like that, having their parents present, you're having the grandparents around to help right. the kids if yes. useful, those kinds of things. Things like mental health, for example, I think are, right. is, is an area where, where there probably aren't enough supports in place yet. Right. And, and maybe, right. I know there were some really interesting articles written early on in the last couple of years in the resettlement about the fact that you don't really know the impact of the mental health crisis amongst the Syrian refugees for a few years yet, but it will come. Can I just kind of switch tracks a bit here for a minute? Annika, I mean, one of the things that yeah. I've always admired about your work and um, continue to admire about your work is that you are both a widely respected scholar and you're also an activist. So you are not someone who is simply researching ideas and issues. You use your scholarship, I think, in many ways to kind of drive your activism. And, and you know, as someone who also tries to make that balance in my own life, you know, I'm curious about how you try to find that balance between maintaining your, obviously, your credibility and your stature as an academic and as a researcher with also having an opinion about these issues. I mean, how do you, how do you manage that? I mean, I think the two go well hand in hand, and I think yes. what I keep hearing in recent years, too, is from people in the community is that academics have such a privileged position in terms of being able to speak out, in terms of being yes. able to, to speak our minds on things that many others can't, um, and even people that you would expect within the community to be able to um, to voice concerns, you know, because of where their funding comes from, and, and you know, it's, it's entirely understandable that they don't feel they can they can say they can speak about what they see. I think it's it's incumbent on us as academics to use the position that we have, I guess, as part of it. You know, and it seems to me, and, and I think some of this comes with, with age, too, that you want, you feel like you really want to see the impact of the stuff that you're working on. Yes. And that abs absolutely, that has to be, you know, the, the deeper pieces that you spend time on and that are, you know, really, you know, written with long time to consider and whether field work or doctrinal research done in a thorough way. But 
more and more it's important to me to be able to turn that around and, and, and make that useful as well. Um, and that, I think, is a, is a balance. And I think it's an important balance for our students, too, because there's a temptation to only do the, the sort of short pieces and, you know, to know that an op-ed is going to be read by a lot more people than sometimes we have academic work. But right. I think the two really have to inform each other, right? Does it ever feel to you like, and you know, I, I, I'm sort of thinking about your work in the community now, Annika, both in the Netherlands and in, in, in back here in Canada. Does it ever feel to you that, oh gosh, why did I decide to work on an area that people have such strong feelings about? I mean, people will be listening to this yeah. podcast too and hearing both you and I make the assumption that is, you know, our assumption that we should be welcoming people from other countries, and, you know, it's a highly politicized area. Um, you know, does it ever feel like, gosh, this is a rough ride? Yeah, it would be easier to work on something else. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, every once in a while you get you get these emails, you know, people who obviously disagree with you, or, you know, if you ever read the comment sections and the op-ed that you write or whatever, Don't right? I mean, you, you, know, you know the other side of it. Exactly. <laughs> the rule you're not, the line you're not supposed to cross. But, uh, you know, of course that's, that's it, but that's also the reason to do it, I think. And, uh, you know, in terms of refugee policy, that was... You know, in some ways, my work had backed away from that area over the last few years. I, I do some other work in, in, in more on the urban planning and and um, property rights side of, of of my work, I guess. And and I had, you know, and that also had its controversies. But I had been placing more energies there. And and I think with all that's happened on migration policy and all that is yeah. happening on migration policy in the last couple of years, I, in particular, I felt called back to it. So I guess in a way, I I felt like I rechose this area because it is so so topical and so important to me. And I think it's important to get it right. Like you know, I have I don't have refugees in my family, but I have migration uh, in my family, like most of us yeah. do. And having had experiences working with you know, the Kosovo refugees and working with the government of Canada on, on immigration and working overseas in these areas, it really I felt very much pulled back to it. So as I said, I think the fact that it is so topical is actually um, you know why why I'm back in it. I guess that's a great answer. So. I want to just kind of end by asking you to talk a little bit about how you balance some of the personal demands in your life because you are also a working parent with three young children. I know how busy you are um, as not only an academic but also overseeing student volunteers at Windsor who are working to support refugee sponsorships. You are part of a refugee sponsorship that I'm also a member of, but I have to say you have put a lot more time into that, which is doing what you were talking about earlier, which is trying to bring a family together again who are partly already in Canada and the other half is left behind. So you are a very busy lady, and I'm sure that this takes some pretty serious time management skills. And I'm thinking that especially for young practitioners and scholars, you know, who want to work on social justice issues, who feel called to do that kind of work and also advance their careers and take care of themselves and their families. Do you have any practical advice here? I mean, you know, I know there's no magic bullet. Yeah, I don't know if I do or not. I, guess, I think the first thing is that none of us is ever sure that we have the balance just right. And uh, I don't know. I mean, some of it is just, it's, I think, yeah, a lot of it's fly by the seat of your pants. 
but I, I think a lot of it is if it's something that you're passionate about, you'll find the time for it. And, and you know, whether that means sort of, you know, working, like bringing the candle at both ends for a while. You can't do that all the time, but sometimes it feels like that has to happen. You know, but the other thing is I think there's, there's a season for everything. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. everyone finds their own solution to the work-life activism, what you know, community engagement balance. Because I think that's social justice work too. Being a good, a good and engaged parent is kind of the, the most important human rights mm-hmm. work I can do in a way. And I think you just have to make good choices along the way. Like I've just started to do some work with some consulting now with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, which is very much related to the work that I do, but it's something I wouldn't have taken on three or four years ago, probably. You know, and so I think you know you, you make you make good choice you make good choices, and the, they're different choices at, at different times. I think. At different but, times. Um, I don't know. I'm still working on it. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm I'm sure we're all still working on it, but I I'm, I'm <laughs> sure as well that uh, your kids are very proud of you, Annika. So, thank you so yeah, much for talking nice to me today. Say. It's been great thanks so much, Julie, and uh, looking forward to seeing you back in Windsor soon. One of the one of the things that you and Annika talk about in that conversation is the fact of the difference, almost even just geographically, between uh, Canada and um, the Netherlands or some of these other smaller European countries. In that we don't actually literally have people pushing at our borders mm. in the same way, and so when you look at that context it kind of makes you think, well, maybe we're not actually doing as good a job as we could be when you look at what the Netherlands is doing when they have that pressure. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting too, that kind of vivid sense that there are people, you know, literally fleeing and pressing on the borders in these European countries. And I think that that presents all kinds of additional challenges that we just don't even imagine here in Canada. And when you look at the amount of space that we have here physically as well compared to the amount of space as a European, I know, that there is in <laughs> Europe. It's uh, it's a pretty big contrast as well. And I think that although Annika was saying that we can be proud of what Canada does, um, it also puts into perspective the fact that, well, maybe we can do more. Maybe we aren't really quite in the position of, of stress that some of these European countries are. Right. And I I really liked her other point as well about um, the way that we take in refugees and immigrants and specifically looking to do it in a more principled way and specifically looking at bringing in extended families in what yes. we tend to call family reunification. Mm. But as you and I have been talking about as we're Recording this today, um, we were both listening to an episode of The Daily, another podcast this morning that was talking about this issue in the context of the U.S. right now and the way that Donald Trump refers to that practice is what is it chain, chain migration chain migration yes. we, what we negative. call family reunification um immigration restrictionists and donald trump call chain migration it's this idea that once you've taken one person you're just going to get inundated with all these other people and i think what annika was really emphasizing which is so important is that family reunification is a way of trying to maximize 
the potential of families to succeed once they get here. And the, the role of, for example, grandparents is tremendously important in allowing parents to go to language classes, find jobs. And, and you know, family reunification is a way of making um, immigrants more successful mm -hmm. instead of seeing it as a, as a pejorative way of once we've taken one of them, we have to take them all. And on that note, uh, just a few days after you talked to Annika, uh, the Canadian government announced a change in uh, the immigration policy in that instead of a first-come, first-serve policy, there's now going to be a lottery system. Right, for family reunification. I mean, the timing of this was, was kind of interesting because it was right after talking to Annika. Uh, and the Canadian government has been criticized for this, um, changing a first-come, first-served policy for family reunification to a lottery system. Uh, so we will post some of those articles on, on the website. People can take a look at them. Um, I asked Annika if she would comment on this, since this is directly in the area that she works. She's very disappointed at the way that this was done. It wasn't done with public consultation, and there was very little notice. And of course, now it creates a huge lack of predictability, as she says, a lack of predictability for people already struggling with long-term family separation on top of often other traumas. So she says it would be good to see a much more systematic approach to family reunification uh, throughout the entire immigration system, but the lottery system has a lot of drawbacks. So finally, um, one of the last things you talk about in your conversation is this issue of scholarship versus activism. Yes. And I liked this because, really, you're talking about something with Annika that you experience as yes. well. Which An is, issue close to my heart. Exactly. This Trying to strike this balance between your credibility as a researcher and the need to stay objective with still, of course, having an opinion about the topic that you're looking at. And I really loved Annika's response, was, which was that she considers her position to be very privileged and considers yeah. that she needs to use that privilege for good. Yes. And Something I exactly agree with. Exactly. And um, that it's incumbent upon you as, as academics to, to use this power and influence. Well, I think that we all want to see our work having an impact. Mm -hmm. And while Annika and myself and many others um, are committed to doing very objective and well-planned research in order to bring forth conclusions that might be useful and important, we also want to see what we conclude happening and having an impact on the communities that we work in. And I really loved what Annika said about this and, and share those views myself. And I think that, you know, she didn't really talk about this, but it's not always easy to be that kind of community-engaged academic, that activist academic, because we don't, within traditional academia, make an awful lot of space for that work. And we don't give an awful lot of credit for that work to people who are still, for example, untenured as professors. So uh, she actually directed me to a very interesting article that talks about some of these challenges for working as an activist and an academic, which we will also be posting on the podcast webpage. In other news, first, our new Supreme Court Chief Justice, Robert Wagner, 
made reference last week to the urgent need to reform the system for public complaints against the judiciary. In a surprising but very welcome remark at the ceremony marking his appointment, C.J. Wagner said that, It has become increasingly evident that our procedures for dealing with serious judicial conduct complaints are outmoded, slow, and opaque. We hope that this indicates a priority for our new Chief Justice of dealing with the lack of credibility and transparency in the present judicial complaints process, issues that deeply trouble the public and are affecting confidence in the judiciary as a whole. Second, there is a fascinating article in this month's Canadian Lawyer magazine on legal education. Titled, Training Yesterday's Lawyers, it talks in unusually frank terms about the gap between what lawyers actually do and what law schools teach. The article especially emphasizes the difficulty of innovation in law schools, described as turning an ocean liner. This is, of course, part of an ongoing discussion about the future of legal education in Canada, and we would welcome your thoughts and comments on this issue. Finally, Michael Spratt, who co-hosts The Docket, another fantastic Canadian law podcast that you should check out, recently wrote an op-ed for CBC and appeared on The Current, talking about the problem with using the innocent-until-proven-guilty defense outside the courtroom, as is so often done when allegations of sexual assault or harassment come up. Michael points out that the presumption of innocence is a legal construct for use in a court of law and should not be used to shield powerful abusers from public scrutiny. Julie and Toronto star journalist Kevin Donovan talked about this very issue in our podcast episode, Weinstein and Gomeshi, Outing Sexual Predators. As always, links related to these news items can be found on our podcast website, representingyourselfcanada.com slash podcast. That's all for jumping off the ivory tower this week. Tune in next week to hear Julie's conversation with Sue Rice, who assisted Julie in her original research into the self-represented litigant phenomenon and was my predecessor as the NSRLP's first project coordinator. Sue has a lot of great reflections on what made that original research so fascinating, and she has some great stories about the early days of the NSRLP. We're calling the episode, What's in a Name Tag? And you won't want to miss it. 